the topic that we've been looking at has to do with uh, the assertion that the grammar of design makes better sense of speaking of God's work in the world than does the traditional grammar of theology, in inverted commas. Now, you understand in my world, that's waving not just one, but several hundred red rags to a phalanx of balls, if you can have them. Right, so um, I just need to unpack some of that language. Uh, the reason I put theology in inverted commas was to try and head that attack off at the parcel or something. And you can see it here as well. Okay? So when I say um, better sense, I don't mean just better sense. I think actually that design thinking is more in keeping with the character of Scripture, actually, and even the grain of the cosmos or God's creation. So uh, what I kind of the, the guts of tonight when we get there is going to do with uh, looking at early Genesis. Now you've looked a lot of a lot at that over the years, so I'm not going to spend too much time on that. But uh, I want to look at some of the design language that's implicit in the Genesis story. Now there are two ways we could have gone about that. I could have given a, a lecture based on stuff I've learned from Tony and others on what design looks like and then talk about Genesis, but we'd be here for a long time. So what I thought I'd do is, is just read through Genesis, but now read it from the point of view of some things I've learned about design, actually. And I think that's going to open up some things for us, if that's all right. Uh, so some things I think we'll see in Genesis that have just recently struck me as unbelievably profound that could mean that I'm just totally turgid and obtuse and don't see things, but I think something's there. Uh, and then I want to unpack what that might mean for us. So they're the, the two big concerns, looking at early Genesis and then unpacking some of that. Now, I need to apologise too because this is all new for me, actually. I'm trying to find language to describe it. So uh, welcome to my floundering. And, uh, you know, I've got some good people here who can correct me uh, where I'm making this egregious errors. But um, what I'm hoping is that as we talk about this, we might get greater clarity. Uh, I had a wonderful visit to SBL in Boston recently. Um, Boston's cold, if you've been there during November. But at least it was bright, so that's different from Vancouver. But I was struck by the number of people who are interested in this kind of topic. Uh, my old alma mater, Gordon Conwell, wonderful school. Um, delighted to have been trained there. Facing significant problems, dropping enrolments. They're not alone. It's happening around the world. Uh, some people think it's just purely a matter of marketing and finding the right kind of people. I think it's more profound than that. I think there's a fundamental dislocation with the way we uh, typically do theology. And our world has shifted in the last 50, 60 years, particularly in terms of this design thinking. Uh, and this, I mentioned this to a couple of my colleagues. And in fact, the chap who's taken over my job at Regent... Uh, he and his wife just said to me afterwards, for what it's worth, they said, you know, we think this is the reason we came to SBL this year to hear this talk because we think it's just essential to us as a college surviving. I uh, also had a totally unplanned meeting. I was asked to give the closing prayer and benediction for Gordon Cromwell's Students Association or something. And I uh, did that and um, got them all to stand up, by the way, and hold hands and excuse this on the grounds that I was a Pentecostal. And I had the microphone and they were gracious. So on those three grounds, they complied. Uh, but after that, this young chap came up to me and uh, just said, look, um, this might sound odd, but I, I think God's told me to talk to you. And I'm, really? OK. <laughs> You're waiting for what's coming next, you know. <laughs> 
Uh, anyway, it turns out he's involved in design thinking as well. And uh, as he explained himself, he said, there was just something about the way you prayed that made me think this is someone I could talk to. And it was a great conversation. We met three times, actually, uh, all in a wonderful pub just across the road. And we got greater and greater clarity as the time went on. <laughs> so just some things like that have actually uh, got me quite excited about some of this. I think we might be on the cusp of some new ways of thinking. But as is my want, I'm going to do some quick review because I recognise there are some new faces. And if you're like me, you need to do revision constantly. The older I get, the more frequently I need to do it. So just some of the things we've talked about in the previous two sessions. Uh, the first one, so review one, we began by talking about shifts in metaphors that humans have been using over the centuries to make sense of their world. And there's been a shift from a chain structure, the chain of being, you know, God at the top and then you work your way down, to trees, so now there's branching out, and nowadays people do networks. Now, uh, why do I mention that? Well, it seems to me, actually, if, if I read Scripture and you want to talk about Yahweh, Scripture looks much more like a network than it does like a chain or a tree. It's much more interconnected. And if you've done some work in literary theory and how literature works, narratives interconnect, poetry, the Bible's much more like this than these other two, it seems to me. Right. So, first point we covered. Uh, the second one had to do with this long history of debate that's gone on. And, and I know this is loaded and you know, I know you have positions in this particular agenda and whatever, but the fact is, someone who comes from Mars could recognise the difference between the format of scripture and the format of theology. And I try to suggest to you that that was not a neutral decision. The ways you express the truth do actually say something about the way you think reality should be described and the best way to engage with it. Right? So it's not a neutral question. And I think we have to face up to that. I think for all kinds of reasons, we like to circle around that. We don't want to face the, the tough question, but I think we need to. In looking at that, uh, we spent some time, or at least you spent some time, watching a clip. So anyone remember the guy's name? Ian McGilchrist. Yes, and the book is called The Master and His Emissary. And it's talking about right brain, left brain thinking. Uh, and we've had those discussions before, but I think what McGilchrist brings that's new is left, the left brain is concerned with precision, accuracy, and to do that, it's got to cut a lot of stuff out. It can actually work really well, better than reality sometimes. But the problem is it tends to lose an embeddedness and interconnectedness. And that's what the right brain tends to do. So we're not playing one off against the other. You need both to operate well. The problem is which one gets to be dominant. And McGilchrist's complaint was that what's tended to happen in Western civilization, beginning with Hellenism, but also later from the medieval world into the modern world, is that the left brain has tended to dominate. And what I wanted to suggest to you, that if you actually compare scripture and theology in the light of the right brain, left brain, theology tends to be much more left brain and scripture tends to be more right brain. Now, you will find left brain stuff happening in scripture. Of course you will. And you'll find right brain stuff going on in theology. So we're not falling into a false dichotomy. What we're talking about is where does the emphasis lie? Okay. And I think in terms of the differences of the two and why this is important, by the way, it's because we're Christians, and what do Christians believe? We haven't bought into the body and the soul battle. That's not our history. 
humans are not bodies and souls constantly at war. That's Hellenism coming back from Pythagoreans. Now, what we're into is a psychosomatic unity. Now, if that's true and the body really matters, then the physiology of the brain is not insignificant and really shouldn't be if we're going to do truly Christian theology because truly Christian theology is deeply embedded and embodied. Okay? So I've said that kind of strongly to make the point, but I don't know if it's quite taken hold with the strength I'd want it to. You can't just look at the physiology of the brain and say, well, that's that, and leave it. Right? It's essential to what it means to be a human being made in God's image. So there's something about the physiology of the brain that's essential to who we are, it seems to me. And if that can help us understand why we have this difference, then uh, all the better. Okay? Then, Edwin Judge, you've heard talk before, if you've listened uh, to the Gospel Conversations discussions, Larry Atado talks about this, Cavan Rowe also, as a bunch of people have been roaming around this territory. And it, there really is a tension between these two ways of living, it seems to me. And they're probably incompatible. Okay. Now, um, I probably should just be clear at this point. I might have mentioned this earlier. I was once giving a lecture at Regent College and I talked about this tension and there was a member of the audience who got up quite agitated and assaulted me or assailed me um, for totally dissing everything that came from the Hellenistic world, right? And you know, there's a gracious way to respond and then there was my way of responding. <laughs> and I thought it was one of those, pardon me for saying this, but kind of a get thee behind me Satan moment when you just needed to say something blunt to make the point. Uh, so my response to that chap was, um, you weren't listening. <laughs> right? Which tends to get, people, get people's attention. But the truth of it is that he wasn't, because I wasn't going after Hellenism as an entirety. I was going after four or five key defining characteristics. Right? So um, can I say, you know, if you walk away thinking, oh, well, Rick's against theology and he's only just about this and he doesn't like Athens, guess what I'm going to say to you? <laughs> right? It's not that, right? You need both of these things. But it, and that's what makes it more complex. It was either or, it'd be simple. But that's not life. Life is complex. You need both aspects playing together. It just requires us to think really carefully about which parts of which worldview are dominant in what particular conversations. So that's really what I was after here. Okay? And then we finished with a clip. And I'll play that a little bit now to give you a break from me. Remember that? That's the first question that Apple asks itself as designing something is, what do we want people to feel? And remember my comment? In all of my history in theological education, that was never a question that even arose. That's just stunning to me. Now, it was very much a part of my Pentecostal environment. But as we all know, Pentecostals don't think very much, so you want to keep away from them, okay? So if you really want to kind of get with the program, keep away from them. But um, I actually think, as we're going to see in Genesis, that that's where God begins, actually, believe it or not. And if that's true, I think that has significant implications for how we do Christian theology or theologizing, okay? So the point that others have made and I will pick up on is that this language is profoundly Christian. That language of delight, 
love, interconnection, all of that stuff. That's profoundly a Christian outlook. You don't tend to find that in the Greco-Roman world. And in fact, you know, you've heard me say, I think the 21st century is probably the most Christian ever. And I say that knowing that most people don't believe in Jesus and that our sexual ethics are all getting shot to pieces and all of that. Nevertheless, in terms of the big ideas that shape our culture, profoundly Christian. Now, if that's true, that means design sits at the centre of all of that. So that means we could have a problem. If our God talk owes more to the precision, accuracy, fear of change that governs Hellenism, then it might be just the ironic truth might be that actually many of those who talk about the gospel find themselves actually ironically opposed to what the gospel's doing. In that, in our articulation of theology as a fixed, precise, perfect system, we're actually going against the grain of what the gospel itself is on about. So I'm persuaded that the whole battle between science and religion came about because the people who were purveying religion had invoked too much of Hellenism into that religious discourse. Initially, too much Plato, and then later on with Aquinas, too much Aristotle. And then what happens? Along comes Bacon and says you have to get rid of both if you're going to have science. Now, ironically, none of those guys actually belonged in the New Testament. We somehow imported them. What if we set ourselves up for the religious, religion science debate because we thought we knew better than God about how to talk about him? We ended up borrowing stuff from a culture that was actually implicitly opposed to change and to scientific understanding. And what if that's actually going on in our world as well, to be honest? What if what we think of as the clash between religion and modernity is really because modernity is actually more Christian than a lot of religion. Uh, People awake now? Should I start running? Uh, Hopefully that worked. All right, so why don't you just take five minutes, just have a quick chat to one another about something bizarre I said or what you disagree with or give you a slight break to revisit some of this stuff. Off you go. I'm, I'm timing you. Take the risk. Yeah, just turn it off. Okay. Yep. Great. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, just a few comments. Anyone? We only got a few seconds just to kind of get the blood flowing. Comments. Anybody? Brick bats. Agreement, shock, horror, something. Any comments for anyone? Excited. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay, great. We were Any questions? Wondering, yes, thank we you. We were wondering a bit about, you know, how current situation, environment, whatever we call it, is, is more Christian and we're sort of reflecting about that things are sort of um, blowing up our kind of... Our, the boxes that we like to see reality right, okay. are blowing up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we want ethics to be like this and it's sort mm-hmm. of falling mm-hmm. apart kind of thing. But that may be good because God says, now you, now you stop putting that box on when I try to right, okay. tell you about myself and, and what I'm wanting to do. Maybe. Okay. I'm just saying maybe. Yeah, no, absolutely fine. Does anyone, uh, can they remember from the first talk, those areas where, uh, drawing on Edwin Judge, but also Larry Otardo and Kevin Rowe, uh, where the modern world is profoundly Christian. 
Anyone want to have a shot at some? The use of the census, how we know, right? Uh, the modern world pays a lot of attention to the census and testing. That was never part of the Hellenistic world. Right? Uh, Postmodernity in the same way. Postmodern people still use iPhones. And as far as I know, um, they don't check your credentials at the door of the 787 you're flying on. We all do it together. So, yeah. Yep, possibility of change. Modern world's built on that. Innovation, design, creativity. No one really spoke about that in the ancient world. Yep, anything else? I work in the disability sector. And boy, the, the revolution that's happened in that for the last 50 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, the ancient world would say, why are you bothering with trash? Right? Your job as an intellectual man is to attend to what is good and beautiful and true. Why would you attend to people who are clearly junk? Why would you do that? Right? So that's not virtue and that's not ethics. Where does that come from? That comes out of the Christian story, particularly compassion and love. These are not big ideas in the ancient world. Right? Any others? Yeah? Caring about the environment? Caring about the environment. Yep, yep. Are those, are those drivers... Oh, sorry. No, it's okay. First, it's okay. We're all right. Far away. Yep. Mm -hmm. are, those, but are the drivers behind this uh, not similar drivers Yeah, because no one in the ancient world, yeah, no one in the ancient world is going to do revolution in that sense, right? So you might, you know, I want to be Caesar and I want to kill you, but that's not a fundamental societal change. That's just someone else gets to be the top dog, right? But the society stays the same. The notion that you can radically change society, I would argue, and others would too, is a uniquely Christian notion. Yeah, that's right. It's a, a radical change of the way you structure society. That's really a Christian innovation. No one really thought about it in that way. Now, when I say Christian, I mean, we're going, this is Jerusalem story, so it's really important to get that. A uh, little footnote here at the college I'm at. Uh, we're introducing two courses on um, parts of the Bible. And my part is called Intro to the New Testament. And the part that comes before me is called Not Intro to the Old Testament. It's called Intro to Israel Scriptures. And we've talked about that a bit, right? This is not old, and neither is this something we've started. We're grafted into Israel's story, and I want our students to know that. So when I'm talking about the modern world being more Christian than it's ever been, I'm really saying it's really a child of Jerusalem. That's out of Israel's narrative. Okay. So there's a bunch of different things you can look at where I think key features of our modern world that change is a gift and the cosmos is dynamic, that you know about it through the senses, that cities are likewise dynamic. They're not fixed hierarchies with elites constantly at the top. That can change radically, hence those revolutions, right? Uh, where the body and soul are not at war with one another. In fact, we have a very different view of the soul. Right? Um, where there shouldn't be any distinction between men, women, slave, free, whatever. Right? Those are Christian innovations. And where we don't do virtue and ethics, and I know we've Christianized those, but in their original Hellenistic sense, we don't do them like they did. Virtue is basically a masculine term and ethics is nothing to excess. Well, that's not what we do. And they're all inward directed in that they're things that you actually develop in yourself. But that's not what Christians do. Christians are filled with the spirit. We're not into self-discipline to become a better person. That's not what we do. What, you know, Paul does say, yes, I have to beat my body, but the most frequent command is be filled with the spirit because that's what's going to change you. Now, 
how's that reflected? Well, trust, hope and care. We've mentioned compassion and love. And, you know, who in our society is going to stand up and say compassion is wrong? You've seen the movies, right? Where people have the, you know, the, the fox or the lion of Wall Street or the wolf of Wall Street. What's his name, that guy played in that movie? I'm really not... Sorry? You know the one, right? Yeah, right. And everyone, you know, this is the guy everyone loves to hate. Well, that is so foreign to the ancient world. He would be celebrated in the Hellenistic world. So I think it's true to say that if you took pretty much your average Australian or even your most radical Australian atheist and put them back in the first century, in many regards, many respects, they'd be regarded as Christian because of their worldview. So that's what I mean, right? Now, that lecture that I mentioned at Regent was entitled why the 21st century is the most Christian ever, why it's the most confused and what you can do about it. And part of that most confused bit we'll touch on because when you have all of this freedom, central to that is character, and we don't know what it means to be human anymore. Okay? And I think that's what's got us into trouble. But the big difference for us folks, right? I mentioned this the other night when we got together, when I talk to my chiropractor or my physio about this, I am streets ahead of Paul. Because my physio and my chiropractor actually live in a world that's the product of the gospel. Paul never had that. Okay. So you actually have an awful lot on your side if you understand how big the gospel can be. Now, there's one other question, then we'll move on. Yeah, um, maybe it's a bit left field, but um, I'm asking the question about the Christian influence that comes through the extreme heresy of Marxism via Hegel. Yeah. That's our big, our big cultural problem at the moment is the way the Christian vision is profoundly subverted at the moment by the most murderous political movement in world history, which is Marxism. Yeah. And that's all around us, and that's really subverting a lot of things in society. So, now, it, comes, it comes out of Christian base, yeah, it's a yeah. very deep Christian base. Yeah, yeah. You know, Marx is an, he's, he's an eschatologist, he's yeah. an eschatologist, he's got yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yep. got it. Yeah. Well, see, the funny thing in China is I've gone there, for, you know, probably for the last 10 years or so every summer. I don't think I've met a Marxist there. Right? And I actually don't know personally any living, walking, breathing Marxists. Uh, you know, there might be a few at universities where you can get away telling yourself fibs for a very long time. But I don't know in the practical world you can live that very long. I mean, that's the reason why China's gone the direction it has, Russia's gone the direction it has. It just, it's not in keeping with the way the world is. You... Really? Oh. Okay, right. Okay. I wonder if Donald Trump knows this. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. All right. So, shall we move on? Did you have a comment you wanted to make? Great one. No? Okay, good. Eh? So, um, anyway, that's what we were doing in the first session. Uh, the second session, uh, focusing on this a little bit more, I wanted to point out in terms of the history of the word theology is not, in fact, ours. Now, in one sense, that's a trite observation, but on the other hand, if you know something about the way, the way words operate, they never travel on their own. You invite them into your life and they bring aunts and uncles and grandmums and Uncle Tom Pomley and all, right? Because words are embedded in cultural systems. And you might be doing all you want to try and resist some of those things, but words and their connotations are very, very powerful. Webs of meaning come along with them. And... The problem, it seems to me, with this word is coming from Aristotle. It pres presumes two kinds of reality. The stuff in the physical world that's near to hand that we can know in and of itself, oh, sorry, through our touch, and the other stuff that transcends that, so hence metaphysics, 
that you can't know so easily and has to be known in and of itself, which is basically to do with human rationality. Now, I think that helps me see why some theological textbooks look like they do, why they look much more like an exercise in rationality and so little like the Bible. The Bible is profoundly grounded in history and culture, has different languages depending on who it's addressed to, Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek. Um, Very much aware of cultural events, the way people's lives are shaped by their cultural background. Uh, You don't do that in philosophy. Why? Because that stuff changes, and if it changes, it can't be true. You try to get rid of all of that, and you move toward this more rational approach. Now, the outcome of that, I tried to argue, if you go down that road, there are only two options. You either go to determinism or relativism. And the two great exponents of that are the Stoics, where nothing can ever change because the Logos controls everything, or if you're an Epicurean, actually, even what appears to be Logos is just random. But in both of those settings, genuine change is impossible. And not just that, our friend's about to disappear. Because personhood either gets swallowed up in the impersonal logos or it simply becomes an epiphenomenon. That's a big word. There are injections if you manage to catch it. Right, we'll cure you of it. But it basically means that personhood is something that's kind of, it's just the product of atoms bumping into each other. But that's all it is. And I want to suggest to you that you really have no option. If you start there, this is where you have to end up. And if you don't, it's because you've got off the train at some point and you really can't. You really need to pursue those things through to the end and that's where they'll take you. So part of the reason for talking about that is why would you choose a word that comes with all of these webs of connotations? Why would you do that? And it's not our word. It doesn't even come from our culture. So historically, it might be worth asking why we did this. Uh, Did we have some problems with our ego? What does Paul say to the Jews who um, who want to impose circumcision on the Gentiles? He says they're ashamed of the cross of Christ. Might this also be because we're ashamed of the cross of Christ? If we can at least hang on to some semblance of rationality, that fits this world, that was all the rage in the 2nd and 3rd century, is that going to give us some credibility? And it might be worth actually pushing back at that. Are there really, sorry to be so blunt, pride issues in this? Because if that's what's going on, that is not a good way to go, it seems to me. Okay, so after that, we had a bit of a look at Scripture and we noticed how different things were. First of all, reality has to do with the senses and testing. Somebody mentioned that, which includes actually knowing Yahweh. It's just intriguing. You never see in Israel's scriptures any attempt at rational speculation to know who Yahweh is. In fact, I would argue it's forbidden. When Yahweh says, I am who I am, he means don't guess. You don't speculate because I'm not the product of your rationality. I'm not the product of your imagination. Now, you see the correlation. Neither is science. If I think I can do science by speculating, it's got a wonderful track record. I think it's pretty much a batting average of, what, 0.001 or something. You don't speculate. You have to see what's actually there. Interestingly enough, if you want to talk about bringing a holistic approach to the world together, Israel scriptures give you that. Doing science is no different from how you know Yahweh because both involve the senses and testing. The same God and the world he made. 
You don't have to live this compartmental life of this battle between religion and science, right? it seems to me, from Israel's point of view. What do you know about Yahweh? Well, he's not an animal, so he doesn't look like the god Horus, and he's not a human being, but he's a person. And the way you know the persons is through history. So we talk about that, right? Which is why the scriptures look like they do. Can you see that, right? When your theology looks more like rationalism, what are you actually saying about who God is? You're kind of fundamentally denying his personhood and you're essentially arguing that he's simply a rational idea. And did you, where did you get that from reading scripture? And, of course, what's the untold, you know, the unexpressed implication behind that? Well, actually, we know better how to talk about God than God himself. And you'll find people saying this all the while asserting the importance of holding on to the scriptures. Right? And it seems to me, this, I don't know about you, but it seems very odd to me that someone hasn't woken up and said, hang on a minute, we've got a bit of attention here. Right? So, personal, you know, or a person you know through history. Now, what that means for us is that we don't need metaphysics. You only need to get beyond the physical if you think the physical world is going to distort reality and you have to escape to something else. But where did you get that from reading Scripture? What's the constant movement through Scripture? It's never about us ascending. It's always about God coming down, isn't it? That's always the trajectory. From walking in the garden... Right, to appearing to Abraham, Noah before that, on the mountain, the incarnation, all the trajectory, even at the end, Revelation, what does the New Jerusalem do? Whoops, sorry. <laughs> Being carried away here. What does the New Jerusalem do? Right, from heaven to earth, right? So whence this notion that for Christians to know the truth, they have to ascend out of here? It's not part of our narrative. But where does it come from? And what if that direction of travel is actually um, indicative of a profound opposition between these two ways of knowing who God is because actually who is this God we're seeking to know? Right? So we don't need metaphysical speculation because the God who made the world came among us and revealed himself to us and Israel trusts that if he made the world, he surely knows how to reveal himself in it without being misleading. And that's what you see with Jesus, right? In John, Jesus says this several times, to have seen me is to have seen the Father, right? And there's no footnote about, oh, by the way, you understand because I'm physical, therefore I'm distorting the truth. Just be aware of that. So make sure you do your apathetic theology, whatever it is, right? And just be aware. There's not a hint of that. Sorry, Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so remember we talked about Aristotle saying two kinds of things in the world? The stuff that's near to hand, right? Like the seat, my glass of wine, that kind of stuff, right? And I know it that way. But then there's other stuff beyond that, beyond this changeful world right? that's connected with reason and understanding. That stuff you have to know in itself, and that's much more difficult to know. It's eternal, it's unchanging, right? So the metaphysics after physics is what you've done. Once you've learned about this stuff, you're ready to start moving on to the next one. Right? And the way you do that, it's purely a rationalistic exercise. Why does it have to be that? Because if anything's physical, it changes. Right? I'll drop the glass and prove it to you. But no, I won't. Um, 
And if it changes, it can't be true. That's their assumption. So anything that's about change like culture or history or even language, and you can read some of the church fathers doing this. They want to get out of this stuff. They're looking for stuff that actually belongs somewhere up there. That's a really interesting idea, but the Bible never does it. There's nowhere I can see in Israel scriptures where God says, by the way, just remember this is Hebrew, so I'm going to mislead you a lot here, but that's just accidental. Where does he ever say that? That's what I'm getting at. This, this idea that we have to somehow get beyond the, what we've experienced, either in Yahweh or in Jesus, we have to get beyond that to something else. So I'm going to say, no, we don't need a metaphysics. Because our God's actually come down to us in the incarnation. Again, and I push that a bit with some of my friends. You want to do this, so what's the problem with the incarnation? And who told you the incarnation was a problem? Where did you get that from? That's like a question God asked in the garden. Who told you you were naked? I hope these are being punchy enough because I think they're really important questions to be asked. I don't think we can avoid them, actually. So, uh, coming out of all of that, sorry, I talked about agency. Oh, dang, there's too many buttons there, sorry. I can give you the Aramaic for dang if you like. Um, so, what I think uh, we see actually in terms of the, bringing these two things together, Yahweh is a person who acts in history. What we're dealing with is not abstract knowledge but agency, which I think is a much more coherent and integrative right-brain approach. So we talked a little bit about Descartes. Remember Descartes? What did he say? I think, therefore, I am. There's a question about whether that's actually not just... Um, what's the word I'm after? It just came and went. Sorry? Thank you. Thank you, sir. Great. You think as a Pentecostal, I'd remember those things, right? But just <laughs> um, and John McMurray says, actually, no, human beings are agents. We're not just thinkers. So there's this embodiedness about what we do. And I think, again, that's much more a scriptural approach. And I want to suggest that actually that's how we know Yahweh. We know Yahweh through his agency. As we watch him in action. It's always in the context of his engagement with people in this material world. In which case, then, I want to suggest that if you're going to do theology, it's a verb primarily. Okay? Living in Israel's scriptures, what do you all think of? You all learn about this in Sunday school. What are the things? What does Moses bring down the mountain? Anyone? The Ten Commandments. What are they? They're all verbs. There's no descriptions of essences, no descriptions of anything like that. They're all verbs. Why does that matter? Because this is about human agency. In Israel's world, agency really is a possibility in a way that it never was in the Hellenistic world. And the moment you've got agency, now you're talking about design. The moment you do that, you've got agents who can genuinely change the world. Now it's design language. Okay. Well, finally, we got to this last bit. Uh, John's Gospel, and we did that partly because I just finished teaching it this semester, but partly because John's just a great gospel. And a couple of things I pointed out was, to start off with, uh, John, actually, it's a brilliant gospel because he picks up on a lot of universals from the ancient world, Hellenism, light and above and below, right? 
that kind of language, but also water and wine. Who's the most commonly represented deity in the ancient world? Aussies would love this. Yeah, Bacchus, right? Or Dionysus, connected with wine. Most commonly represented deity. And that's the language that gets picked up. Jesus' first mighty deed in John is turning water into wine. All kinds of great stuff going on there, it seems to me. So what does John do? He takes all of these universals, but he says they really only have meaning in what setting? In Israel's narrative. He grounds them all in that story. Now, I think he's doing exactly what Paul did on Mars Hill. So to kind of rewind a little bit, Paul actually congratulates the Stoics and the Epicureans in their critique of idolatry. Right? So this is not a wholesale dismissal of Hellenism. Right? But he immediately goes on and says, but if you want to talk about reality, you've told the truth about yourselves. You're actually ignorant. You do not know this God that I'm proclaiming to you. And the reason is you're in the wrong story. And that's why he goes back and talks about Adam and then the story of Jesus. Right? So he's really saying, if you want to know the meaning of all of this, You've got to locate this in Israel's story. I think that's exactly what John's doing. Right? All those universals that the Hellenistic world is used to, he says, only have their meaning really in what Israel does with them. And so he starts with the Logos. And of course, you know, if, you're a, if you love the Logos stuff, you camp out here, which is where a lot of church fathers did. right? Yes. But they forget that John drops this after about two or three sentences. And when he gets to the end of his gospel, he doesn't say these things have been written that you might believe Jesus is the Logos. doesn't say that. What does he say? Israel's Messiah and the son of Israel's Yahweh. That's what you need to believe. So all of that together, I've been trying to say, actually, that the stuff we take for granted in the modern world really comes out of Israel's story. That's what freed us from the deadening hand of Hellenism. I think Hellenism is a culture of death. I know these are kind of crazy one-liners, but I have to keep you awake, let alone keep myself awake. But that's what they're doing. They're all practicing for death. That's what the Stoics are doing. They're either just trying to hold it off like the Epicureans until the inevitable comes, and then along comes this new story that says, no, this is about life. It's something about bigger, and it's about transformation. Okay, so five more minutes to have a quick chat, and then we'll launch into the Genesis bit. Okay, so, so we'll you, you can understand if you think that you live in a two-tiered universe where everything that's made of matter changes and therefore is not true, what's the one thing that doesn't change? It's geometry, right? Okay. Euclidean geometry. That's why they get excited about it. That's why Pythagoras gets excited about his number theory, right? You're into the stuff that doesn't change. Okay? But how does that help us any? Right? Well, What's that got to do with knowing Yahweh? It's, do we ever, you never see this happening in Israel's scriptures. Yahweh comes among them, they encounter him, they see him, they hear him. In fact, he says that to them in the Exodus many, many times over. You yourselves heard, you yourselves saw. Right? Um, and that's a very different epistemology. That's an epistemology that has to do with this, which is the very thing metaphysics doesn't want you to do with. Do with. Yeah, sure. Yep. And then there's a question over here. Uh, you, you actually used a word that's not sort of metaphysics, the word you used was reflect. Yeah. And that's different. Um, um, don't want to go too far on this, but it will help. And one of the great icons we use in Second Road is called uh, the Flying Wedge. We use it all the time um, as a way of looking at reality, um, which essentially says um, 
that the way forward um, in many situations is connecting an upper and a lower. Okay? Um, this is experience. This is idealism. And very rarely are they in dialogue, particularly if you start with experience, which designers are taught to do. But all designers reflect. They abstract out of experience. But you have to very deeply notice the experience. And this is... This is the heart of Jewish thinking. This icon is the heart. Of, it's actually the heart of Jewish thinking. Um, and so I think, um, and, and once that kicked in for me, I saw that everywhere, not just in scripture, but in life as, as an enormous wisdom. So this would be reflection versus metaphysics would just cut the bottom off and off I float uh, through theory. And very few people, I mean, our education is not experiential. We're not taught to look at life. Uh, which I think the, is what the Jews were in the Old Testament. But that, that's always okay. helped me resolve those issues. Does that help a little? Probably put it better than I could. Uh, I think what's important here too is to notice that metaphysics changed its meaning, yeah. right, yeah. significantly. Yeah. It really meant one thing in the first century, which is the world I'm dealing with. Yeah. Now it's come to mean something else, yeah. right? And I, I think maybe what Sam's getting to is the fact that it's shifted in its meaning. Sorry? Well, I don't think he even used it. I think it was Andronicus of Rhodes, who was his editor, who actually introduced this classification, I think. right? But, um, what I'm really after is, is where reality actually resides. And so, OK, if we want to talk about it, um, what's his name? Um, Hexaity. Who's that guy? Um, Gerald Manley Hopkins loved him. Called the uh, Dunscotus, right? Uh, one of the things that he was really on about over against his colleagues was that actually things have a particular thisness about them. And I really appreciate that because my understanding of Hellenism is that it wasn't the thisness that really gave something its reality. It was the thing that lay behind it. So, you know, for Aristotle, a tree really matters because actually it's an embodiment of the kind of treeness thing. But I think Duns Scottis is saying, no, 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 there's something about a particular tree, it's thisness that really matters in and of itself. You know, any of you know Gerald Manny Hopkins, Kingfishers Catch Fire, right? Okay. So he talks about that, you know, that um, these things have this kind of being in themselves, right? um, this being that indwells them own, uh, how do I describe this? Them as their own selves. Right. And each one declares, for this I came. So they're not classes, they're actually individual expressions. Uh, so someone was asking me before, just might help about this, you know, that Jesus is divine. I wouldn't use that language anymore because divinity is not a Jewish category. There's only Yahweh in his creation. Divinity comes from somewhere else. And I think it ties into this metaphysical thinking as well. Right. So, Yeah. Okay. Thank you, and helpful corrections. But I'm, right now, I'm still thinking. I'm just when I see Christians getting fussed about metaphysics in that first century sense, my thing is I don't see that in the New Testament, and I don't think you need to worry about it because mostly it's based on rational speculation, trying to get away from what you've seen and touched and handled to get to something else. I'm just not sure that's what we do. Anyway, anyone else want to have a shot? It's very. Oh, we need to keep going. I've just got a signal from the back here. Okay, so let's launch into this, shall we? And we'll have another little break along the way. So, um, scripture and design. I, the more I think about it, the grammar of design, yes, not only makes better sense, but I think it's more in keeping with the character of scripture and the grain of the cosmos. Okay. So, um, 
First off, I'm going to start where the scriptures do, with uh, Genesis Genesis itself. I've become more and more persuaded by this, actually. Uh, Because to start somewhere else says that I have another way of accessing reality that's more reliable. So if I want to start away from Genesis, what am I going to start with? Eternal and temporal? Spiritual and earthly? What am I going to choose, right? And how do I know that those are the starting categories? What if the great gift of postmodernity is to help us know we actually know far less about reality than we think we do? And the tools we thought we could rely on tend to be a lot, lot weaker than, they, than we thought. So, reason. Well, you can't even prove this table exists on the basis of reason. And Thomas Reed and uh, what's the other guy's David Hume both recognised that, even though they came from different angles. Right? You just you have to accept it. It's just there. You can't prove it. Uh, Kurt Goodell. Everyone's thinking mathematics is the way to go. And what does he demonstrate? He demonstrates actually that not only can you not prove the internal consistency of your number system. In fact, what mathematics shows you is you can never prove it because mathematics itself is not sufficient to that task. So, of course, mathematics underlies a lot of our technology. So, experience, technology, and then I think postmodernity gets a bit of a bad rap sometimes. For people like Stanley Fish, what they're on about when they say, I'm a postmodern, is they're simply saying, um, I'm rejecting modernity's claim that there's some way you can prove it's wrong to torture a child for entertainment. He says it can't be done. There is no mathematics, no algebra that will prove to you it's wrong to torture a child merely for entertainment. You can't do it. And then people like Roger Strawson suggest perhaps, or argues actually, that you can't even tell through reason whether humans are responsible agents or not, and you won't know until the universe is over. Now... The Enlightenment often gets a bad rap because it relies on reason, but one of the positive sides of the Enlightenment is as they thought about that, they actually thought about the limits of reason. And so in some ways, post-modernity is the child of the Enlightenment. I think both modernity in that more kind of we can prove stuff through reason and post-modernity that says you can't, they're both Platonism on steroids. That's where they come from ultimately. It's not the language that Christians end up using. So I'm actually going to start with Genesis. I think that's important. Now, that's not usually where people start with their theology. What are some of the the first things you do if you take a theology course? What's some of the starting points? Doctrine of... Doctrine of id. Oh, sin. Oh, my goodness. I hope not. (laughs) Well, maybe some do. And hence, you can explain what happens afterwards. Well, you know, doctrine of scripture. Right? Um, I've always thought that's a bit like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. I mean, why would you believe scripture to tell you what scripture is without first believing scripture? You're not actually establishing anything. You've already given yourself a commitment to scripture and you just, okay. So you're going to catalogue what it says about itself, but you're already convinced it's the truth. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to it or the thought. Right? Or even epistemology. Is that a good place to start? I don't know that it really is. Because even when you establish how you know things, how does that make scripture true? I think, actually, the best way to approach this is to ask yourself the question, why do people buy smartphones? Why do people buy smartphones? 
because they like the way they enhance their lives. They like the way it makes sense of their relationships, doesn't always help, so trying to get them out over a meal. But can I suggest that that's actually a very good reason to come to Genesis? Because look at the way this story has enhanced our lives. Modernity is its gift. So I'm now in the habit of saying when people ask me, well, how do you know Christianity is true? I just say, look around. Because your world is the living, breathing product of the narrative this tells. And you can actually touch and see and handle that. Now, I know that might sound very pragmatic, but maybe it sounds pragmatic to the Hellenists among us who want wonderful, rational, abstract proofs. But maybe that's not the nature of the world we have access to. So I'm going to start with this. Now, a lot of good things have been said about Genesis, Ian Proven, John Walton. I won't repeat that. But the first thing I want to draw attention to is actually Genesis begins with agency. Remember we talked about scripture and design? That's where it begins, with an act of agency. And it's a design issue. There's a problem. It's called unformedness. And we want to deal with this in a way that actually creates a place where there can be life and flourishing. That's a design question, isn't it? Is that something? Correct me if I'm wrong here, Tony, but it seems to me like it is. Now... Think about that. Just think about what that might mean. It begins in the design world. It doesn't begin with an attempt to start from first principles and work its way up. And I wouldn't want to start there because I know what culture that leads to. So what does it mean to start teaching Christian theology with agency at the centre of what you do? What if that's the place we should start? Not, I think Christianly, therefore I am a Christian. But what if it starts with agency? Now, I remember when I was studying New Testament uh, back in a long, long time ago when Noah was a lad, uh, you'd be looking at Paul's letters and the first bit would be theology and then after that you'd have some kind of praxis. So you get your truth right. and then. But of course, the problem is none of Paul's letters really fitted that model. And I think my Jewish friends would say to me, and they were never meant to, because there was always this integrating kind of dynamic back and forth between thought and action. And it's centered in the fact that humans begin as agents, and that's exactly where God begins. Now, I think this is essentially the design space. Now, it's interesting... As you read through this story, you don't really hear much about who God is at all. You're like that casual iPhone buyer who walks into the store and you pick up the iPhone and you like it. You like its form. You like its connectedness. I've already mentioned the way it enhances your life. Can I suggest that's exactly where Genesis 1 begins? Does it begin with the doctrine of God? Begins with this physical thing, a design solution to a problem that people start to experience. And how do they experience it? They experience it as 3D, not as a lovely concept. Now, what do you know about Steve Jobs? Steve Jobs hated technical drawings. What did he always want to see? He wanted to touch the mock-up. He wanted to touch the 3D thing. I was reading an interview with Johnny Ive the other day and he said exactly the same thing. You can have all the design drawings in the world, 
But in their design store, they have these lathes, milling machines, because they have to make the 3D model. Because when you get that in your hands, everything changes. Right? Now, think about the implications of that. If your theology is being driven by conceptual models, what's going to happen when the reality doesn't quite conform? You're going to have this tension about where truth really lies. But what if there is, in fact, an incredible pragmatism to the Bible, right? where the actual physicality of the stuff is what really matters? Not the theory, but what it actually looks like on the ground in ways you can see and touch and handle. Of course, that's exactly how Jesus comes to us. And that's what John says. We're telling you what we saw and touched and handled. There's a concreteness about this. Right? And that strikes me as belonging to the design realm. The concreteness of the answer to a design question. Now, if you look at these physical realities, right, what do you know about this creation in the Genesis narrative? Now, in uh, Steve Jobs' authorised biography, there's a chapter that talks about his encounter with a chap called Mark McCoola. And Mark McCoola was talking to him about this notion of imputing. Basically, the point is people do judge books by their covers. Now, I'm not an expert in this field, as I'm not in most of this stuff. But I remember I've got somewhere on my computer this guy who talks about the way humans make decisions. And it's apparently a two-stage process. There's a very quick snap decision that takes place. And it's usually to do with, what does this mean about my belonging to my group? Even if you're not fully aware of that, they say that happens very, very quickly. And then you make a decision, well, I don't like that because it's going to mess up my relationship with my group. And then afterwards, you start to reflect on it. But it's very, very difficult to change that initial response on the basis of reflection. Right? Actually, a very difficult thing to do. And that's why you know, we talk about conversion being what it is, right? Because it's requiring a shift from that initial group of which you were a part. Right? This idea of people judging books by their covers. I asked this question at a Regent lecture once. How many people here have Apple products? And who kept their packaging? <laughs> Why? Because it's beautiful. Right? Why do they do that? Because they know about imputing. Right? They know about that first encounter. Right? And when you read Genesis, what hits you? Flourishing in the midst of water. Life. Shalom. Right? It's the very first thing you begin with in Genesis. Now, that to me is design language. And its implications are enormous. What do people impute when they first encounter us? Because you've got that one moment. You don't get it again. That first moment. What do they impute? When they first encounter a Christian, I'll let you answer the question. right? But you, you can see right, we could have a major problem here. Um, I have a friend, Joe Lee, who uh, actually works with Apple, and he told me about his induction program that they put them through, uh, where they really have to grow into a narrative, which, by the way, is exactly what's going on in Scripture. You're being inducted into a narrative, and you're meant to express its character and then to impute what it imputes. That's the whole process of conversion, if you like. He said there's one section where they talk about uh, the Apple guys um, you know, you open your product, you have that kind of little plastic, clear plastic clothing, 
And then what holds the plastic down is that little dot, right? Apparently, they had between 30 and 60 different kinds of dots that they argued over. Right? And you might think, well, that's actually just anal. On the other hand, it could be they really care about what they impute. And you don't get to know that stuff without serious thought. So Tony was talking about reflection. Right? John and I would say, we'll talk about this in just a moment, um, you really can't work out what's extraneous until you know your product all the way through from the top to the bottom. And only when you really know it can you begin to focus on what matters and what doesn't. And then you can start thinking about, so what does this impute to people I encounter? Right. So I'm part of a Christian organisation. What does it impute when people try to enrol in our courses and try three times and can't get on? And, you know, that's imputing one thing. But I'm thinking even more than that. I'm thinking we tell people they're made in God's image and we do that to them. Right. Do we have a problem here? I think we do. But if you come at what's going on in Genesis from this perspective of what you're imputing, look at the things that it imputes. Right? And you haven't actually yet met the God who's making it. You're simply encountering the stuff that he's producing. Now, think about that when you're doing evangelism. Right? Do we come to people to try and win an argument? Because what does that impute? Not just about our God, but about who we are. What does that impute about our design values and the world that we're going to create for them to inhabit? Would you be attracted to that? Is that what God does? Hmm. So we don't even know who this God is yet, but what are we seeing in this opening to his creation? This unboxing ceremony, which you can watch on... You've seen those? YouTube, right? People get their new Macs. Actually, have people over for an unboxing party. <laughs> right? You've seen that stuff? Okay. <laughs> and you think this is... But, you know... Is that what's going on here? The unfolding of God's creation? What it imputes about who he is? Okay. And where does it take us? We've already talked about order. We've talked about flourishing. We've talked about shalom. And it ends up in a garden. And what's the garden called? Eden. And what does Eden mean? Delight. You remember watching a video a little while ago? What's the first question Good designers ask themselves, how do people feel? Right? So here's my question to all of you. If you're living in this design narrative, which I think is what scripture gives us, when people meet us for the first time, the fundamental question we should be asking ourselves is, how will they feel having met me? Right? Pardon my French, not whether I'm bloody right. <laughs> Sorry. I just had to say that to wake you up. Right? That's not what this is about. This is about life. This is about flourishing. And this is about how people feel. Johnny Ive talks about wanting his products to be immersive experiences. So you actually kind of forget the product and you're just immersed. What do you think is going on? in a garden called Delight. A garden whose name is to luxuriate. Right? Immersive experience. 
And notice that. The importance of human experience in all of this. We're not hearing about what, God's, what God feels. It doesn't say, and God looked at himself and said, yeah, that's a pretty good job. Right? None of that. Right? It's all this thing that he's producing. Right? And when it comes to the garden, it, that's, it's really all about us. Now, that, I just found that incredibly interesting. Right? This opening narrative, right? and it's, it's where you start, folks. Where you start is absolutely critical. Start the wrong place and it all goes downhill from there. Right? We start here, and what's the focus on? The focus is on human experience. That's why Hillsong is going to trump most of your churches, hand down, hands down, every time. Right? Because they understand this. Not, not sure because they've necessarily thought about it, but because they've been smart enough and pragmatic enough to let go the theory for the reality. Right? To let go the philosophy about what we rationally assume should be true for what they actually experience to be the case. Right? And the truth of the matter is, and I'm not here to champion them, like any institution, I'm sure they've got their problems, but there's no question that people really meet God there. There's no question. I went to the graduation uh, middle of this week. I've never been anything like it. <laughs> it's absolutely astonishing. But I said to Katie Laddie, you just think about this. Those kids could have been at pubs all around Sydney getting smashed out of their brains and doing who knows what after. And here they are, faces shining as they sing to the glory of Jesus. I don't care whatever else they get right or wrong. That's worth something. Right? Now, designers will think about that. And I think that's where Genesis is going. Right? How do people feel? God actually cares about that. Well, it's not all about our feelings. Of course it's not all about our feelings. There's something else going on here. Something's being imputed about the character of this God and therefore you want to get to know him. Right? Why do people come to Jesus? Why are they attracted to him? Makes them feel good. Exactly. He heals them. Right? Now, is it possible to say that that's what designing is? Designing is healing a broken situation to make it better? Is that a possible analogy? People come to Jesus because they feel alive. I used to say this to my colleagues at Regent. You know, folks, when kids, when students come into our classes, what they should see is the face of God. And if they're not seeing that, we should go home. That's what we're on about. Right? May the Lord cause his countenance to shine upon you because that's the only thing that's going to bring healing and restoration. That's what they see in Jesus. Now, I'm not saying teaching doesn't matter. Jesus taught, but not the kind of rationalistic demonstration, this mathematically rigid logic. That's not what he does. He cares about teaching. But if you read the Gospels, the reason the people flock to him, yes, there's teaching with authority, and he heals him. And Matthew in particular makes that point. That's the great attraction of Jesus. They flock from everywhere because he heals them. Now, what if that's what evangelism is actually? Healing in the much broader sense of making meaning of the broken lives of people around us. And central to that is what we impute. I need to get cracking. Um, we've got a bit more to get through. But I think you see this with Paul writing in Thessal to the Thessalonians, first letter. What does he say? We didn't come with word only, but with spirit and with power and with great conviction. And can I say, if that's not happening in our churches, then we should stop associating Jesus' name with what we do. Because we're not doing what he does. And this is too important for us to be doing our own thing. Right? 
is not just about word only. There is word there, but spirit. Power. And great conviction. Right? Presence of God changing people's lives. And he says, you yourselves, you yourselves know what kind of people we were when we were among you. We were gentle. We were kind. That's their response to us. It's what they impute. He talked about doing the signs of an apostle. Yes, there were healings in there as well. In the Galatians, letter to the Galatians, he says, yep, they reminded me of one thing. And what was it? The guys in Jerusalem? That we should be mindful of the poor. And this I was deeply committed to doing. Now, I have to say that is one of the great things I think Christians have got right and continue to get right. We're mindful of the poor. I have a friend who works in um, psychiatry, and he said if the Christians pulled out of Australia's um, psychiatric, uh, psychiatric institutions, they collapse overnight. Tremendous Christian contribution, caring for people. The idea that in Christ there's no male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, and yes, that's all three pairs. Right? What does that impute about who you are? What do people feel? And I think that's Rodney Stark's point in his book, The Rise of Early Christianity. That's why people were attracted to the gospel, because they saw something about lives put together and the imputation was of life and fellowship and connection and love. That's what they did. Of course, they cared about truth, but that truth was much more embodied than a series of rationalistic statements. And you all know this. That's why Rodney Stark, though, can conclude what the early Christians gave the ancient world for the first time was its humanity. So maybe we have to think about that. In my tradition, I think being spiritual basically means being weird. But what if you'll never be so truly spiritual as when you're truly human and you'll never be so truly human as when you're truly spiritual? What if living a life filled with the Holy Spirit is not odd, it's actually our natural condition in that biblical sense? That's what we're designed for. And it might just be that many of us are living subhuman lives, actually. Because we're not living out this image life that God calls us to. Well, don't want to labour this too much. Um, don't have time to go through it. Any German speakers here? Your chance to shine. Weniger, aber besser. Ta-da! It's a little German I know, apart from Gesundheit. Right? <laughs> what does it mean? Weniger, less, but better, right? Uh, this is all to do with just um, thoughtful design that's not cluttered. And I don't know if this is accidental or not, but if you look at the literary shape of Genesis, it does this. It's beautiful in kind of the sparse structure. Three days of forming, three days of filling. Right? Just this wonderful expression. Uh, oh, I could say a bit more about this. I don't really have time to go into it, but... There's, there's a beauty about this thing. I'll come back to this in a moment. But the very structure of Genesis itself, I think, embodies some of these principles. One more thing. Ta-da. Does that sound familiar? One more thing. Uh, apple. Is that what he says? One last thing or something? What's the phrase? I can't remember. Okay. Um, if we're talking about what this imputes... The stunning thing about Genesis 1 is their structure, but incredible freedom. And somehow those two things manage to hold together. That God has given us a structured world where it's not completely chaotic, 
but it almost looks as though he gives creation its own space to be what it is. So I actually don't have a problem with evolution. I can see that as God's gifting his creation with freedom. I've set this up, now creation can begin to express itself. Now, I'm not saying that God himself therefore changes, which for some reason is where people seem to immediately go whenever I say that. No, God's character is constant all the way through. But you deal differently with a three-year-old, I presume, than your 33-year-old, though there might be some times in you question whether you ought to do that or not, right? So... But the fact is, your character hasn't changed, but the circumstances in which you're expressing yourself have. Right? So even though your responses might be different, that doesn't mean that you've changed. Right? So I don't have a problem with God granting creation incredible freedom, and it doesn't mean that he somehow is growing and changing too. Right? He can be consistently who he is, enabling this flourishing to take place. Okay? Now, the, the thing that's interesting about this is, um, you know, God just apparently doesn't have issues. I don't know if you noticed that. Apparently, he's not fussed. He can give us freedom and we can make monumental mistakes and he doesn't drop off his throne in a panic attack. And yet sometimes I hear theology where unless God has got everything nailed down, then somehow he can't be king. Come on, he's the creator. You honestly think if he's committed to bring this creation through its restoration that we can derail that? I mean, read the scriptures. Even with Israel's faithlessness, God's still able to do his thing, even if it means he comes among us and does it himself. Right? Now, think about what this might impute for the way we do theology. If you take this design approach, maybe some of us won't be so, pardon me, hard-bottomed about what we think righteousness and being godly looks like because you won't have the same fear to have to control stuff. God apparently doesn't. So what does it mean then for us to imitate that? Okay, well, uh, coming to the last nine, it's nearly ten past nine, I'll be done in ten minutes. Where do humans go wrong? Why are we in the mess we're in? The 21st century, the most Christian ever, right? And why it's the most confused? Why? I think it's autonomy. <laughs> and why do I say that? Well, when you're in a world where there's genuine freedom... What will determine your agency, your character? And designers tell us this. Every design choice is a reflection of your character. I can walk into your church and I'll be able to discern the character of the community that has built it. I'll be able to tell what things you value, what things you dislike, what things you want to control, just by looking at what it is you produced. Every design choice is a reflection of the designer's character. Now, that's why I think character is so critical to the biblical narrative. In Hellenism, you don't really have the choice. You're a Stoic and you're simply conforming to the Logos or an Epicurean and it's all random and there's no point anyway. But if you're in this world where there is structure and yet freedom, character becomes absolutely critical. So first of all, that's partly what you're seeing revealed in the creation story. God's saying to you, do you like that? Hmm, that tells you something about who I am. It's seen in his handiwork. But the critical thing for us is, is when we decide we don't need that connectedness, we can be autonomous and make our own decision. And notice what this is about is actually character. 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I would actually translate into talking about character because that's going to shape your agency. Okay. Now, character is the one thing that a product doesn't give you. It can reflect character, but it can't actually give you character. Character is a personal thing. So it seems to me that what the scriptural narrative is doing is recognising we're all designers, but if we don't imitate God when we design, we're going to be a menace to one another. When people tell me that the garden story is actually all about God not wanting people to know, I'm going to say to them, you haven't been listening. Because if you read that narrative, God wants us to know. Look at Solomon. What does Solomon ask for? Wisdom, right? Which is all about teach me how to make decisions about what's right and what's wrong, about what brings life and what doesn't. And when he asks that question, he gets everything else, including learning all about all the plants, all the trees, all the stuff that crawls across the face of the earth, right? Absolutely central, it seems to me. Reading the Bible as a design document. God wants us to know. He wants us to learn how to do this. But if we try to do it on our own, we end up with Hellenism. And look at that stultified culture, the justified slavery, the justified in treating women as less than men, etc., etc., etc. Is that where you want to go? So I know people have talked about Western history being this wonderful creative tension between Judaism or Jerusalem and Athens. I'm not so sure it's been that creative. Because every time it's gone down the Hellenism road, it's actually brought, I think, just death and disaster in terms of these five major categories I've been talking about. Right? You start going down that, you start relying on reason and we're going to end up. Look at what those totalitarian regimes look like. So, last point then. And then we have a little video. Uh, I came to uh, Macquarie University, how long ago was it? Years and years ago, did some stuff on trying to make sense of the Bible using its own categories. Strange, tall man came up out of the crowd, gave me a big hug and said something like, someone who knows how to talk about theology or something along those lines, I can't remember. You can correct me if I've got it wrong. But you can't remember? Okay, something like that. Uh, and it was that that introduced me to, to this whole notion of rhetoric being the language of design. And I won't go through all of that because I'm sure you've covered that with Tony and if we haven't, then that's next year. But I'm convinced the Bible's not analytics, it's rhetoric. It's God's way of persuading us based on his character to live according to his narrative. Right? Now, people who talk about rhetoric as persuasion, it's not mathematical demonstration. That's not how it works. Right? If I want to sell you an iPhone, I can't do that on the blackboard with geometry. I've got to find some things about you that I know you like and value. And I say, well, that's what this does, right? So I'm trying to get your adherence to the things that you like and move that to this thing, right? Now, isn't that what Genesis is doing? The picture it opens up is an amazing place to live. You go, this is absolutely brilliant. I like this. It's great, right? God speaks to us in that language. And then out of that, he begins to say, now, you know who I am? And you see why you can't live an autonomous designer life now. You need to reflect my character. And as that story unfolds, he explains more about his character. We talked about that last week. Right? He stands on the rock and says, you think I'm like the gods of Egypt? Whack me and see what happens. And I will bleed rivers of living water for you. Right? Gathered round the mountain after you've been worshipping this golden calf. right? And you deserve 
to be swept away. But this God will listen to someone who goes up and says, I've been watching you, I know something about you. And then you get the wonderful proclamation in response to human engagement. The Lord relented. And then you get the proclamation, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And you and I play a major role in evoking that and calling it forth. So what do you need if you're going to be a rhetorician? You have to know the history and the culture. Cicero said that. Yahweh knew that millennia beforehand because when he speaks to Israel and Egypt, he speaks in the language of that culture. Quintilian says it's not just enough to know history and culture. You have to be good. And that's why the centrality of Yahweh's character, right? His deep compassion for us. The Lord is good to all and has compassion on all that he has made. He knows that we are but dust. He hates idolatry. Why? Because he knows that destroys us. He tells us the only place for sexual activity is in the marriage bed. Totally flying in the face of everything else in the ancient world where it's happening all over the place. Worship wherever, right? No, no, no. Just there between one man and one woman. That's the only place for this. Otherwise, it will destroy you. And if you don't think it's destroying our culture, you need to talk to somebody who knows about some of the dark spaces on the web and just the, this mind-boggling, horrific stuff that's done to other human beings. Right? And this just tireless pursuit of sexual satisfaction. I mean, just scary, horrible, awful stuff. The character of our God giving us a space in which we can live and thrive. Okay, so I have one little clip to show you. Um, again, see what you think of it. <laughs> Okay, well, um, this is what we're on about. A compelling narrative, making meaning of people's lives. We're designers of a new future. We have the Holy Spirit with us to form the character of God in us. And the future is wide, wide open, including, who knows, starships on the edges of Sagittarius. Bless you. Okay, questions, answers. It's late. Feel free to go if you need to, or if you just want to get some fresh air. That's too. <laughs> but uh, here we are. Thanks, thanks, Rick. And next year, well, um, I've been too busy to think much about next year, but I'm sure we'll uh, have a good time and um, start again.